The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I am the Borg. Greetings. I am curious. Do you control the Borg Collective? You imply a disparity where none exists. I am the Collective. Perhaps I should rephrase the question. I wish to understand the organizational relationships. Are you their leader? I bring order to chaos. An interesting, if cryptic, response. You are in chaos, Data. You are the contradiction, a machine who wishes to be human. Since you seem to know so much about me, you must be aware that I am programmed to evolve, to better myself. We too are on a quest to better ourselves, evolving toward a state of perfection. Forgive me, but the Borg do not evolve. They conquer. By assimilating other beings into our collective, we are bringing them closer to perfection. Somehow, I question your motives. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 24th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on 94.9 CHRW Radio Western. Where we will be with you from now until noon. Not right wing. Just right. Fade into color. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright And welcome to our show today. Uh, you know, last week with Salim Mansour, we were discussing the border versus barrier distinction as it related to immigration, with particular reference to the Mexican issue in the U.S. that was Donald Trump's push-button issue. Well, I imagine Robert will be pushing a few buttons on that issue today as well. Hey, Robert? I'll be pushing buttons, Bob. People <laughs> will either love me or hate me. Okay, well, <laughs> I'll be interested to hear that. For my part, I'll be breaking my own sacred taboo in the second half of our show today, as I'll be asking, believe it or not, Robert, will the real capitalist pig please stand up. I think the disgraceful actions of politicians and governments around the world on the Uber issue is what's prompted me to ask this question, to say nothing of the latest encounter I had on this issue over the past week. Crony politics at its best and most glaring. Robert, take it away. Let's see how we start off with this immigration issue. Well, I'm going to start off by talking about conservatives first, just a little bit, because um, as you know, in the past I've railed against the conservatives for their intrusions into the private behaviors of Canadians for giving us false hopes as capitalists that they may do something about uh, the socialist world we live in. And and paramount of the um, private behaviors of Canadians um, has been the war on drugs, which I call nothing short of domestic terrorism, and the refusal to overturn legislation they vehemently opposed while in opposition. The Liberals have historically been indistinguishable from the Conservatives when it comes to overall governance and personal liberties. Quite frankly, they have, if you just look at the record. They perpetuated the U.S.-led Nixon-initiated so-called war on drugs, and while Justin Trudeau has promised to legalize possession of cannabis, there's nothing in the track record of the Liberals which convinces me that he'll keep his promise. If, on the off chance he does, then it would appear that the onerous regulations and taxations he also promises, along with the legislation, will hardly change the status quo for pot smokers and growers. Now consider that it was a conservative party which heralded same-sex marriage in Canada. Just consider that. 
I have no doubt that the end of cannabis prohibition will happen, and at some point in time it may just occur under a conservative party. The Americans are showing us the way, and whatever the party in power, they'll follow suit, eventually, regardless, conservative, liberal, doesn't matter. If cannabis prohibition, same-sex marriage, the economy, and the host of other domestic issues were the only factors I had to consider during this federal election, I would not vote. In domestic affairs, both parties, which have a history uh, uh, of governing to date and the NDP, um, have based their platforms uh, on virtually uh, indistinguishable issues, indistinguishable uh, uh, solving Mm. uh, problems. Uh, You can't tell one from the (coughs) other, with some exceptions, important exceptions, mind you, and I'll bring those up later. All three parties are socialist. All three parties do not respect our personal liberties. All three parties are tax and spenders. But domestic issues are not the only issues to consider. Now, here's the immigration part, the recent mass immigration from the perpetually war-torn Middle East, notably Syria and Iraq and at the moment, uh, has brought to the forefront the importance of immigration and citizenship and border security, Islamic terrorism, and the sovereignty of those nations who have agreed to let these migrants in. In this issue, which is one of existential importance to Canadians, only the Conservative government under Stephen Harper has done, and intends to do, if his word is worth, uh, worth anything, the right thing. All domestic issues pale in comparison, in my personal viewpoint, to this most important and fundamental issue. Quite frankly, what is the right to smoke cannabis in comparison to allowing tens of thousands of people into the country who are avidly opposed to all freedom? Not just freedom to smoke cannabis, but all freedom, and have views diametrically opposed to individual rights. I've mentioned on the show before that I support an open immigration policy with a couple of caveats. The most important restriction, of course, is filtering out anyone who has the potential of being a risk to the life, liberty, and property of Canadians, or a security risk to the nation as a whole. It's it's relatively easier to filter out people who have criminal records. It's a matter of record. And those that are of a criminal nature... Um, are but a small percentage of any random sampling of immigrants. It's not so easy, however, to filter out a group of people who, once inside the country, will foment dissent, commit terrorist acts, commit acts of sedition and treason, and pursue efforts to undermine the Western values this country has developed since before its founding. When it comes to the survival of your country, one must put aside how politically inc- incorrect it is to make generalizations, to profile, and to stereotype, and instead act in the nation's best interest, and your personal interests, while we're at it. To this end, I have proposed that our border be closed to all Muslim immigration. None. This is the view, by the way, You're supporting... like Salim Ansour. I was just about to say that. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's the view supported by many Muslims already in right. this country, including Salim and, and people um, like him. Tariq Fatah. Yeah, who have shed the, uh, you know... Uh, it's a view supported by many Muslims who are here, and they've already shed the barbaric ways of the original homelands. Okay, they're civilized people. And I know no more civilized man than uh, Salim Ansour. If Islam were simply a religion, we wouldn't be having this discussion. But it's not. Islam is a deep-rooted cultural system and a political ideology. It's not just simply people praying. It's people fighting. It's people voting. It's people changing things. Fundamental to that ideology is the spread of Islam to the world. Not unlike Marx's workers of the world unite, the call from Islam is people of the world submit. That's what Islam means. The word actually does mean Mm -hmm. submission. Mm -hmm. 
Why single out Muslims in immigration when a large percentage of them pay only lip service to their faith? It's precisely the sheer numbers who do adhere to the root philosophy of Islam that makes them deserving of isolation as a group. Now, until recently, we in the West were just basically unsure of just how many Muslims supported Sharia and Jihad, and how many, by contrast, are quote-unquote civilized. Now, the Pew Research Center published a report on April 30th, 2013, so a couple of years ago, called The World's Muslims, Religion, Politics, and Society. And with that report, we now know what kind of numbers we're dealing with. If we were to follow the advice of Justin Trudeau and allow 25 Syrian migrants into Canada, then we would be allowing into this country over 12,500 people who believe that Islamic Sharia law should be the law of Canada. You meant 25,000. I think you just said 25. Did I really? Yeah. 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 Uh, well, tr- Trudeau is, yeah. is going to allow in 25,000. Correct, correct. And I, knew, I knew what you meant. Yeah. 12,500 people would believe in Sharia law. If these migrants were from Afghanistan, that number would actually be 24,750, since 99% of all Afghan Muslims believe it, according to the report. And I think the report uh, surveyed 10,000 Muslims worldwide, so it's pretty... Uh, Comprehensive. Now, if Trudeau's immigrants were solely from Iraq, then would we, we would be allowing into our country 23,000 people who believe that a wife must be subservient to her husband and obey him in all things. Ironically, if we were to take the terio- stereotypical stereotype of conservative and liberal attitudes, then you'd believe that such immigrants would be a great support to conservative governments. And yet we see the federal liberals wanting such attitudes brought into Canada. Such attitudes we got rid of 100 years ago. Well, maybe 60 years ago. You know, once in countries such as Canada and the U.S., some Muslims become a little less barbaric in their beliefs. 19% of American Muslims believe that suicide bombing is sometimes justified. Can Just figure that out. Now, 19% of American Muslims, they're already in the United States, and there's millions of them, believe that suicide bombing is justifiable. Of Trudeau's 25,000, that works out to 4,750 migrants who support suicide bombings he wants to bring in. The overwhelming majority of Muslims surveyed worldwide vehemently oppose prostitution, homosexuality, abortion, euthanasia, and the consumption of alcohol. Consider these things immoral and subject to strict punishment under Sharia law. That's the majority of Muslims. In a free country, these attitudes may be of no concern. Why would we be concerned about what people believe if you live in a country that is solidly free? But in a socialist democracy as we have today, numbers mean everything. And and past a certain threshold in a democracy, it is often the case that the views of a minority win the day. Remember, I mean, when was the last election? Probably under federally, uh, (coughs) probably Mulroney who got in with a clear majority. Well, minorities are almost the rule of the game. I'm talking popular vote. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I could go on quoting the poll results which show that mass migration of Muslims into this country, particularly from Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, hardliners, would have serious and deleterious effects on the culture of this country and the security of Canadian citizens. But I'll leave it to you to read the report. I'm just going to Google and type uh, the title of the report in there from the Pew Research. Um, Now, remember that when these migrants are brought in, There is no way to screen them for their attitudes on Sharia in any reliable way. 
So for this reason, no Muslim immigrants should be allowed into Canada. The risk is too great. Now, the NDP under Thomas Mulcair would let in 10,000 Muslims. But that's this year. Unscreened. Immediately. Increase that number after 2015. It's madness. Sheer madness. It's only Stephen Harper's conservatives who would do anything resembling the right thing. Harper has said that he would allow in 10,000 migrants in over, uh, over a period of time, but only after the proper screening for criminal behavior and as a security risk. And preference, now here's the, here's the key that gets me, and preference would go to those people suffering persecution in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, most notably Christians. It is for this one stance by Stephen Harper that I'm going to vote for my local conservative candidate. The very nature of Canada is at stake. Our personal security is at stake. Our lives, our individual liberty, and our property are at stake. The new Democrats and liberals would throw caution to the wind and risk these things. Stephen Harper will not. He has my support for this one fundamental issue, certainly not for many of the other issues he supports, which I do not. Now it's time for a little break. And what you're about to hear are excerpts from a 2013 podcast by Drs. Leonard Peikoff and Yaron Brook, president of the Ayn Rand Institute, and a past guest on the show. Yeah, so two objectivists. Yes. Also in the podcast, you will hear the voice of Amy Peikoff. Now, under discussion is the issue of immigration and citizenship from an American point of view, though it can be easily translated to Canada. As a matter of fact, Peikoff was a Canadian. Mm-hmm. The entire podcast can be found on Dr. Peikoff's website at peikoff.com and on iTunes. Now, when we come back from the break, we'll talk a little more, more about who is a refugee, and I'll also examine in a little more detail some of the good and bad things that Harper Conservatives have done. We'll be back in about four minutes. So in a free society, immigration should basically be open. It should be, people should be allowed to come into this country uh, for any purpose uh, they choose, as long as they're not violating the rights of Americans, uh, it, it should be available to anybody. Now, there should be a few restrictions in the name of protecting individual rights. That is, in the name of the role of government, qua protector of the individual rights of Americans. So, for example, if, uh, if you're carrying an infectious disease, you should not be allowed into the country. This was even in Ellis Island. This was one of the standards. If you're a known criminal and therefore are a threat by your very presence in the U.S., you should not be allowed in. If you're a terrorist or so some associated with a terrorist organization, you know, you should not be allowed uh, into the country. Um, but other than that, as long as, again, is, is you've got a, you've, you've bought a ticket, you, you've got somewhere to stay, uh, then, uh, you know, immigration should be open. Um, I want to add a little element here, and I, I'm curious as to what Leonard thinks of this, um, about the distinction between immigration broadly and citizenship. Mm, very good point. I was going to start on that. Yeah. My general view is that immigration, in a free society, immigration to the United States should be very easy. And that becoming a citizen should be hard. That is, that becoming a citizen should require certain knowledge and, and I don't know how you apply that to, ex- to people born in the United States, but certainly with regard to immigrants, uh, citizenship should be a much more difficult thing to attain than just coming here to work or as a tourist or, or to visit or whatever. Um, 
And it's this certain philosophical knowledge about the nature of the country, or political knowledge about the nature of the country and its its principles. Uh, you, you should be you should test for that in some way. I certainly agree with what you said, but I would add certain things. I don't think it's enough to say that you would exclude uh, medical problems and terrorists. I would put crime much more broadly. Now, you have to draw the line at a certain point. Like a I, said Did you, but I said criminals. But I criminal. thought you were restricting yeah. it to criminals. No, no. But thirdly, very important, anybody who is an enemy of the country over and above whether they've committed any crime. If, for instance, they're an active Nazi during World War II, you say, well, he didn't commit any crime, he just writes books. That still will keep him out. So that, I think, is a, a very important thing. Uh, and I agree with you completely, very important point, that the propriety of immigration does not entail citizenship. There's a huge difference between individual rights and civil rights. The rights that a person has as a, a member of a certain country and the rights that you have just as a human being. Your right as a human being does not allow you to violate the rights of the citizens. In other words, the rights that they possess qua citizens. Uh, so uh, to me, that means that even if a person is not, you know, obviously contagious or a murderer or whatever, we still have, have to have a means to judge. Uh, is this the kind of person that should ever become a citizen? If it is, then there's no problem. If it isn't, is it okay to let this category of person broader than what we've said, in or not, and that is not a violation of their rights. Even though a human being has a right to move and has a right to property, he does not. If there's a category of problem that uh, is a threat to the country. That, of course, was uh, Leonard Peikoff and Jerome Brook in a debate, which can be found on Peikoff.com. I encourage you to look it up. Dr. Brook has also put out a recent podcast, I think it was just this month, dealing specifically with the so-called Syrian refugee crisis. Before I continue, I'd like to remind people that you can get hold of us, uh, write to us at feedback at justratemedia.org. Follow us on Twitter. Twitter. That too. Like us on Facebook, <laughs> subscribe to Just Rate on iTunes, and visit us at justratemedia.org. I noticed that there was a caller trying to get in uh, uh, while I was talking there earlier on. Unfortunately, we can't take phone calls over the year because the phone is right in front of me, so it's just inconvenient. Apologize for that. If you do have a comment, let us know at feedback at justratemedia.org. So to continue, I say so-called refugees, because once these people get into Canada or the United States, the vast majority of them are not even properly classified as refugees, and as such, shouldn't be dealt with under normal, or sorry, should be dealt with under normal uh, immigration procedures and not fast-tracked as refugees, as the NDP would have it. As Ezra Vant pointed out at uh, the rebel.media, the United Nations definition of a refugee does not apply to somebody emigrating from a peaceful country where their rights are protected. Almost none of the so-called refugees from Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan will be coming directly from those countries, if you will, but most of them won't. They'll be coming from the safe havens of countries like Turkey and Germany, Great Britain, Italy, and other European countries. In other words, they have already rid themselves of their oppressors and are just safe and sound, relatively. 
They're no longer refugees. They have become immigrants in the eyes and under the laws of any second country they move to. So let's just stop calling them refugees, at least from the perspective of Canada. They're not. They're migrants. Case in point. That image of that drowned toddler on the beach in Turkey was particularly horrifying. And the impetus for the outpouring of empathy for the plight of people in uh, fleeing Syria. But the truth of the matter is that photo op was staged. The boy certainly drowned, but his body was placed on the beach by Turkish officials because the area where his body was originally discovered wasn't photogenic enough. It was a bunch of uh, it was a body a bunch um, within a, a bunch of rocks. So what did these officials do? They took the boy. They took his body and they planted him face down on the beach in a little more photogenic area. Uh, if you want to uh, know about this and in any more detail, there are photos of these heartless men lifting the boy out of the water and implanting him down on a more open stretch of beach. They're on the internet. Just look it up. More to the backstory. The boy had spent his entire life, or I think all of it, I don't know if he was born in Turkey or not, but he's, I think he was three years old. And he was for for three years in the relative safety of Turkey, as his family had left Syria three years before. The father has been accused by several of the survivors of the capsized boat, which he piloted, that he was one of those notorious smugglers who risked people's lives in crowded boats. So the true story was that the boy's father was simply welfare shopping and taking advantage of other people welfare shopping. Not a refugee at all. The father was 100% responsible for the death of his son. Not Canada. Not Stephen Harper. Not even Syria or ISIS. The father. The father, by the way, has since said that he'll be returning to Syria. So much for the refugee notion of that guy. Interesting. Uh, this is the stuff that you're not going to find and once the mainstream media has had their knee-jerk reaction and the politicians have had their knee-jerk reaction, reaction to um, a dead boy on a beach. They don't dig enough and it, they don't cover it enough. And there's a similar story behind most of those fleeing Syria. Note that the vast majority of them are young men of fighting age with no women or children in tow. I saw one load of uh, so-called refugees coming off a ferry. I think it was in Greece. Thousands upon thousands of young men well-dressed with their iPhones taking pictures and laughing. Not, not a child in sight, not a woman, not an old man, not an old woman. There are very few elderly and very few women and very few children amongst the ranks of these so-called refugees. Oh, sure, there are some. But they're very few. They are masses of young men, the majority of whom are bent on seeking free food and housing and welfare benefits in rich Western nations. They are Muslims seeking to overthrow the West by stealth and deception. They do not deserve our tears nor our empathy. They deserve to be stopped at the border. A quick search on YouTube reveals countless videos, countless, showing how these migrants are already behaving in their new countries. There are riots, there's fighting and demands and for welfare payments and protests. As far as the conservative record goes, they've done some good things in their time while at the reins of government and some bad. Here's a quick rundown of some of what I consider the good. It's taken from a blog called Crux of the Matter, which can be found at uh, cotmblog.com. Now, just to get off the immigration thing a bit here and get right, right into the election and why I'm going to vote conservative besides the um, immigration stance of the conservatives. They've created an increased 
several uh, and, and increase several tax credits. Now, some examples are adoption expenses, family caregiver, and kids' sports. Now, while tax credits do skew people's behaviors and are not better than an overall tax reduction, I can't fault ways to get your money back from the government. They're not going to be against the tax credit. They created the tax-free savings account. A fantastic plan for people to save yeah, money. Because a tax credit is your own money back, not somebody That's else's correct. money. Although everybody else complains, oh, you're making other people pay more. It doesn't no, work that way. it's well. not a deduction. No. It's a credit. Yeah. I'm getting money back, my own money. The tax-free savings account is fantastic, by the way. I recommend it to uh, a lot of people if they can do it. They signed uh, several free trade agreements. Never hear about them in the news. The EU, Iceland, Liechtenstein, Norway, Switzerland, Honduras, Colombia are some of the countries <coughs> to sign on to free trade with Canada. Fantastic. I love it. They scrapped the long gun registry. I'm particularly pleased with this one. It was an expensive violation of our right to buy and own weapons. I await the day when many of the remaining gun restrictions will be removed, but I won't hold my breath. They've dealt with over 800 land claim agreements with Aboriginal communities. That's good, I think. It's really time we put all of those to bed. They created income splitting for seniors and income splitting for families with children under 18. I agree with that. <coughs> they reduced the corporate tax rate from 18 to 15 percent. They reduced the GST from 7 to 5 percent. Fantastic. Love that. Though I'd rather see it a reduction in income tax over sales taxes, but I'll take what I can get sometimes. They broke off diplomatic relations with the terrorist-supporting criminal regime of Iran. Fantastic. They've got more cojones than the Americans, that's for darn sure. And they've tightened up citizenship requirements, although we have a long way to go with that issue. Now, as for those things that the Harper Conservatives have done or continue to do, um, which I disagree with, foremost, as I mentioned, they continue to wage this stupid, expensive uh, war on drugs. They've increased penalties for growing cannabis, which actually are more severe than the penalties for raping a child. Look it up. I actually covered it on a previous show. You grow seven plot plants or more, I think is the number, you go to prison longer than you would if you raped a kid. As I said at the beginning of the show, their actions against the millions of peaceful citizens who smoke pot or cannabis are tantamount to domestic terrorism. They continue to pay out corporate welfare and invest in projects fighting their, that imaginary boogeyman climate change. Examples of carbon ca- examples uh, of that is uh, a carbon capture plant in Saskatchewan is going to receive two hundred and forty million dollars in subsidies, basically because it's a carbon capture plant. Right. In this regard, though, they're not that much. They're no different from the other parties. My point exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a vote. Uh, a reason not to vote for them. They continue to create more bureaucracies in areas they have no right to be in. Adult Basic Education Northern Initiative, Arctic Research Council, Canada Apprenticeship Loan Program, Mental Health Commission of Canada, Forest Market Opportunity Program, it goes on. They continue to spend money overseas in foreign aid, such as $113.4 million gone to West Africa, Western Africa, to combat the Ebola virus. It's not the proper function of a federal government to give money to other countries to solve their medical problems. Especially money like that, $113 million. There are many other items, good and bad, in the conservative record. Now, like I said, I was planning on not voting this election, but with the current immigration crisis, I had to reevaluate my plan. On the whole, comparing all three parties, the Conservatives, regardless of their many faults, and they are many, win hands down for me. Let them take notice, though, that my vote is not a blank check nor a sanction for further misdeeds and is not a vote of confidence for their past failures. 
It's a reluctant vote to support a more rational immigration policy and for continued ad hoc steps in the direction of economic freedom. Now, if only they could see the writing on the wall for ending cannabis prohibition, they'd win by a landslide, but they're not that smart. So let's hear a little bit more from our um, debate between Leonard Peikoff and Yaron Brook. And when we come back, Bob is going to throw us into the pigsty, aren't you, Bob? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Okay, we'll be back. We'll be back. This. And then you wanted to speak about the effect of another group of immigrants. Yeah, now the yes. other group, and this I have much stronger yep. feelings about, <coughs> is Islamics. Yep. But now I have a very extreme position. I take the position, if, I know I'm going to be considered racist, <coughs> the cab drivers in New York, if they see a black customer in the area of Harlem or going that direction, they won't pick him up. Because, not that they know anything about this man, but they know that the chances are much greater that they're going to be mugged uh, or, or killed. Uh, I don't think that is irrational because you have to go on the basis of probabilities. That's the only way you can live. From that point of view, I distrust Islamics. I don't call it Islamists because that makes it a doctrine. I think people who believe in Islam, you know, like Jews or Catholics or Islam, uh, 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 Muslims, maybe that's the best word. I think that I have to look at all of them as a danger. I'm sure the huge majority of them do not take part in terrorism, but the, it also is true that by my observation, there's very, very little statement by the so-called moderates of opposition. Very, very little. And the result is the whole picture becomes frightening. Now, you add to that what is going on in Europe. You know the situation there. They're ch taking chunks of different countries establishing Sharia, slaughtering women, you know, doing their thing. Raping them. The government is, you know, out of political correctness, is afraid to, to, to touch them. And uh, I think it's a real danger to let them come in now. If I knew which ones were safe, I wouldn't say that, but the same as with this, I don't know. And, and that is a much greater uh, threat, I think, because that is a, is a group that is out to destroy uh, it's not just that they have a political viewpoint or want a welfare state. They are out to bomb this country out of existence. Therefore, it's very dangerous to give them any population base at all. I would cut off all immigration of Islamics. And not, you know, Muslims, advocates. A hundred percent. That's it. You are my publicity man. You ought to be able to figure out the story why they have to postpone the picture. Why don't you tell them the truth, that the horse wants more money and you don't want to pay him? Next time I do a picture, it's going to be with human being actors. <laughs> Mr. Fader, the woman who called last week is on the phone. Mrs. Douglas? Douglas? She said her maiden name is Gronitz. Oh, Lisa Gronitz, why didn't you say so? Hello, Lisa, darling. Hello, Boris. And where are you? In Hollywood. I brought Arnold out here to see you. Who? Arnold Ziffer. Remember the actor I told you about who got better notices than Laurence Olivier? <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. When can you see us? Uh, well, um, how about next week? It's three o'clock today would be better. <laughs> see you at three o'clock. <laughs> He's going to see us at three o'clock. You still didn't tell him that Arnold is a pig. He'll probably notice that when he'll meet him. <laughs> 
that's all I need, a pig. I don't have enough trouble with a horse. A scream, a scream. <laughs> wait a second, boss, wait a second. You got a great idea. I have? What is it? Give the pig a screen test. Then when the horse hears about it, it'll shake him up. He'll think that he's being replaced by a pig, and he'll forget about the rays and come crawling. Well, I did it again. Now you see why I'm a producer and you are working for me. Before we have Arnold's contract drawn up, I want to talk about the terms with you. We are going to start him off with $100 a week. I think he ought to get more money. Now you're talking like the horse. <laughs> of course, that scene, of course, came from the completely wacko and metaphysically disturbing TV comedy series from the 60s, Green Acres, starring Eddie Albert as Oliver Wendell Douglas and Eva Gabor as his wife, Lisa. In Green Acres, animals talk to each other and, and, uh, and with Lisa, but never with Oliver, who's continually questioning if he's living in the twilight zone or wondering if he's actually awake. <laughs> <laughs> now, Arnold the Pig was a long-running animal character in the Green Acres series raised by Mr. and Mrs. Ziffel as if he was their own child. Humorous as Arnold the pig may have been in Green Acres, in most human cultures, the poor pig has had a very negative connotation associated with it. Of course, we all know that all men are pigs, <laughs> you know, and we know that back in the 60s and 70s, the police were called pigs when, when yes. they arrested people. Yes. Um, especially with the pot issue and during the Vietnam era. And the image of pigs at the trough has long been used to caricature politicians who've been seen to be using their elected status and power in government to give themselves everything from salaries, benefits, expense accounts, and special privileges simply by voting for them and forcing others to pay the consequences. If calling such politicians pigs at the trough is intended as a criticism or moral judgment, it is often well deserved as the image objectifies that phenomenon. In contrast, the term capitalist pig has been used quite incorrectly, I think, uh, you know, to caricature businessmen in general for their pursuit of profit. In other words, these capitalists were being called pigs not for their faults, but for their virtue, the virtue of selfishness, as Ayn Rand so provocatively put it in her book of the same name. And that made the term capitalist pig to those of us who advocate capitalism an economic system defined by the absence of coercion in a market of consensual trade, a very inappropriate and offensive term. But today I plan to toss aside my long-held personal taboo, and that is, instead of refusing to use the term or be offended by it, I shall instead acknowledge that there are such things as capitalist pigs, in contrast to capitalists. And to define just what that is and how the capitalist pig is different from the capitalist, now, my mom would, would interject here. She says I should be fair to pigs themselves or I'll get in trouble because she's <laughs> always telling me, you know, they're clean, they're not slovenly, you know, they're intelligent. But, you know, pigs only act the way we think they do when seen in captivity and under the control of the farmer. They're living with the prospect of getting their food from a fixed trough provided by the farmer. Of course, as soon as we start ascribing human traits to animal species or even animal characters in our entertainment stories, well, then the ascribed animal traits take on a different meaning. In fact, I remember as a kid going to the library and borrowing all the Freddy the Pig books. You ever hear of them? They were no. great. Oh, yeah. It was all about barnyard politics, and the pigs were always in charge, and those looked to for opinions of authority. Same has happened in George Orwell's Animal Farm. Mm -hmm. same, same situation. But if politicians are pigs at the trough for giving themselves unjustifiable, ben uh, unjustifiable benefits at taxpayer expense, then capitalists are capitalist pigs to the extent that they want to share at the trough of political privilege. They call it crony capitalism, 
which is an oxymoronic term combining a term like capitalism, which means an absence of government and economics, with crony, which means the exact opposite. Well, <laughs> capitalism doesn't mean an absence of government. In economic matters. Oh, in, yes. No, no, not in, even in, in there. The government is necessary for capitalism to flourish. No, no, you're, you're confusing. Economic matters, I mean setting prices, telling you who to buy oh, from, yes. right? Oh, okay. Okay. yes. That's a whole separate thing, not, okay. not policing the marketplace. That's okay. where they belong. And as I've stressed many times, the capitalists exist in all countries, whether the country socialist, communist, fascist, democratic, authoritarian, theocratic, or yes, even capitalist. So if there, you know, if there was a glaring example of private interests using government as their shield against other private interests, their competition, it's what's been happening in the country of France over the Uber issue, and certainly our local politicians would be best to be aware and to uh, beware of this whole situation. This from the Wall Street Journal, Uber meets its match in France, although I think France is meet meeting its match with Uber. And this is by Sam Schechner of uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, September 18th. And he, he uh, reports that Mark McGahn, Uber's public policy chief in Europe, said the company was willing to suspend its popular low-cost Uber pop service, which relies on non-professional drivers. But he said the French government should also loosen rules on how to become a licensed driver for Uber's other services. French Interior Minister Bernard uh, Sazamouve, so normally soft-spoken, was livid, according to people familiar with the June 30th meeting. You have made a mockery of the French Republic, he said. There can be no conditions whatsoever. There's simply, uh, there is simply the law to respect, period. Now, Uber is trying to overturn the law in France's top constitutional court. By the way, Uber is now valued at above $50 billion, even though it's locked in disputes from Barcelona to Delhi to Seoul. Uber's strident brand of Silicon Valley exceptionalism is clashing with an entrenched French business culture, which I guess we'd call crony capitalism. Pushed by politically connected taxi companies, French authorities have repeatedly implemented new decrees and legislation in the past two years to restrict the growth and operations of car-hailing firms like Uber. New models are challenging the power of states, says Bruno Lesser, head, head of France's competition authority. <laughs> There's a joke. Prosecutors indicted the two top Uber ex executives in Paris on charges that include enabling illegal taxi services. Nicolas Rousselet, the chairman and chief executive of the French taxi uh, firm Groups G7, uh, refuses to call Uber by its name but says his problem is with the philosophy of the California company, not new competition. Do we want to live in a libertarian fantasy where all we have is the law of the jungle, he says? That's barbarism. Can, can you believe some of this stuff? <laughs> no. <laughs> Uber entered France in 2011. Government officials expressed surprise when it and homegrown copycats of the car-hailing firm started to grow rapidly, which obviously tells you there's a, there's a demand out there, right? Even though Uber drivers had car service licenses, rivals claimed unfair competition. It's plain and simple, even though they already met all the other issues, right? And uh, just called for a crackdown. In February 2014, the company launched, launched Uber Pop, which uses no professional drivers. Uber says they aren't necessary because Uber Pop's a car sharing service. France's Consumer Protection Authority referred to Uber to French prosecutors for falsely claiming that Uber Pop was legal. You know. Faced with the new restrictions, Uber executives in France quietly began to try to use Uber Pop as a negotiating lever, expressing willingness to turn it into a professional service if barriers for new drivers weren't too high, say people familiar with the matter. By last November, Uber Pop had 160,000 regular customers. In December, a commercial court decided that it didn't have the jurisdiction to ban Uber Pop. When taxis threatened to strike, the government promised to ban Uber Pop across France as of January 1st. 
French taxi police began in January pulling over and fining hundreds of Uberpop drivers, citing the new transportation law. Uber paid the driver's fines and sent them back out on the road. Can you imagine that, Robert? Pretty good. When Uber expanded Uberpop to three more cities in June, taxi unions called for another strike. The violent strike surprised government officials. Taxi drivers blocked access to both Paris airports, overturned Uber cars, burned tires on the city on the city's ring road. Pretty well just turned into a riot, right? Uber kept pushing to loosen the training requirements needed to become a licensed Uber driver. The response from government was unequivocal. Uber was told it had to suspend Uberpop before any talks could occur. It halted Uberpop on July 3rd. The service had 10,000 drivers, about the same as Uber's licensed car service. Since then, Uber has had limited success in convincing the French government to uh, loosen the licensing rule for car services. So you can see the situation of how ridiculous the whole the whole thing is, and and how it's practically uh, you know just silly. Uh, so you, these are the people I would call capitalist pigs, the, the people who who don't want any competing capitalists with them, and they run to the government for that protection. That's right. that's who I would call call them, and. Um, you know, it reminded me of a joke about, it's a pig joke, I, I, I know I told you I was going to tell you this, but I don't know if you've heard it before, but don't stop me if you've heard this. <laughs> you know, driving in his car one day, a startled traveler pulled over to the side of a backcountry road after he saw a farmer holding a pig high in the air. Why are you holding that pig high in the air, asked the traveler. He's eaten, said the farmer. The traveler took a closer look, finally realizing that the pig was eating a fruit from the tree, and then suggested... Don't you think you'd save a lot of time if you just shook the tree so the pig could eat the fruit from the ground instead? Farmer looks back at the traveler, shrugs, and says, What's time to a pig? (laughs) 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 Well, you know, I see, you know, who's holding up the industry, you know? (laughs) And you could say the same thing. Anyways, Robert, let's take a break for a break with a smile as we listen in on Alan Thicke's 70s parody talk show, Fernwood Tonight, uh, with Martin Mull as Barth Gimbal. Twenty-five years ago, my next guest was uh, a major kingpin in the New York underworld. He was finally arrested. Those courts, they do their job. And he was sent away to jail where he served 18 long months. After paying his debt to society, he decided to go straight. He changed his name and identity and moved to Ohio where he has led a very law-abiding life. He has his own chain of hardware stores and is uh, planning on opening a branch right here in Fernwood. Uh, Please welcome Mr. Mario Dorsett. Uh, you want to sit here? Absolutely. Make yeah. yourself a casa. <laughs> oh, thank you. <clears throat> I appreciate that. Well, yeah. that's nothing. Mr. Dorsett, it's nice to have you. Um, was the transition from the straight uh, to the straight life, actually, was, was that very difficult to make? Not really. When I was in the mob, I, I had charge of the, of the protection racket, see? Oh. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. And uh, one of the places we protected was Papa Joe's Hardware up in the Bronx, see? And I'd go up to Bronx and make my collections every week. When I'd get through at Papa Joe's, when he paid off, we'd sit around and we'd talk, and Papa Joe would explain the hardware business to me, the tools and everything, you know? And, you know, he, he was a great guy, beautiful man. I, he, he was like a father to me. You know? I'll be darned. Probably even had some of that dandelion wine up there. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that goes with the deal. Sure, it sure, sounds yeah. like a very, very tender, tender relationship. <laughs> and you know something? That's exactly the reason that it broke me up so terribly when he passed on. Oh, he passed on. Thank God it was painless. <laughs> you see, 
his car blew up and he, he went like that, just like that. Oh. Well, that's gonna happen, Mario, if you don't keep that thing in tune, you know? You never knew it hit him, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I, then I, I, I came to Ohio and I, I went to work for uh, Bill Franklin in his hardware store. Oh, yeah. Oh, so you started right there at the bottom in this hardware business. Oh, sure. But Bill, well, Bill was a great guy. He was a beautiful man. Would you believe it? Before a month was over, we were partners. No, that's yeah. <laughs> Gee, that's great. We really were. And I'll never forget when I saw that sign, Franklin and Dorset. I choked up. I cried like a baby. Awful yeah. crying out. Yeah, and that's the reason to this day we got his name on that sign in, in his memory. <laughs> Bill, uh, he, he passed on as well? Oh, yeah, sure. You see, what, what happened was the business started going downhill and Bill got very depressed. I said, yeah. Bill, I said, Bill, take off, get lost, go fishing somewhere and, and get away from the thing. And he did. But when he didn't come back, they were not looking for Bill. Yeah. You know what they found? An empty boat. Uh-oh. Yeah. He must have done himself in. I think I remember reading about that. They found him, his hands bound behind his back and everything. That's right, and they couldn't really explain why he would have both feet in one boot. That's right. And his two legs uh, screwed together with a nut and bolt. Nut and bolt. Just tighten the two little harder. Who knows what, what a man will do when he's despondent like that to himself. I, I, I don't know that. I just don't know the details. You of course, fellas are talking. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking. You were kind of torn up anyway. Those I'm details sure. will never be known, probably. <laughs> probably, well, yeah, probably. Yeah, sure. Well, you uh, overcame that grief, though, and certainly made a success of the hardware store business. And in fact, you've expanded several times. I sure have. Haven't yeah. You? Yeah. You must have done a very good job because when you first went to Maxwell, there were three or four hardwares in town, and yours is the only one surviving now. Right. Is that right? That's right. That's a great service there. Yeah. Well, I gotta tell you, I, 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 I don't mind competition. I really enjoy it, but you gotta face it. We, we give them the best service in town. If you go into the hardware business here in Fernwood, I think uh, right now your only competition would be L.D. Peterson down at Peterson's Hardware. Peterson, I hear, hear he's a pretty good businessman. Peterson. Oh, he's one of the best. Yeah, and I understand he's got a lovely wife, uh, Marilyn, yeah? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, a couple of beautiful kids. Do you know where he lives? Uh, no, do you? Uh, yeah, I have his home address yeah. right here. With the... uh, he's got a little house down on... Thank you. Listen, we're really, really late. That's about all the time we have. I want to thank you, Tony. Best of luck, Mario. Best of luck with your uh, hardware business here in town. We interrupt this program to bring you a special WZAZ news bulletin. A three-alarm fire has broken out at Peterson's Hardware, corner of Jefferson and Eucalyptus. The cause of the blaze is not known at this time, nor is there a known way of putting it out soon. Damage looks to be heavy, but who can really tell with all that smoke? Film at 11 tomorrow. Once again, to recap, film at 11 tomorrow. That's all from the Peterson Hardware fire. We now return you to regular programming. <laughs> That's funny stuff. You know, it's really it isn't, there's an a, or a letter to the editor in the Free Press. Why not save other businesses? In city must save cabs from Uber. Armstrong, uh, Councillor Bill Armstrong says he's going to protect the taxi business. But why? He hasn't lifted a finger to help the hardware store businesses. The nail spa business is still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> why doesn't he protect the Uber business? 
Why pick and choose? Well, that's exactly it, isn't it? What about those poor guys who uh, want to have, you know, make some money uh, riding for Uber? Precisely. Well, of course, they're not paying them, McCoy. Okay, uh, that's the whole right. thing. And, you know, last week, Wednesday, I found myself once again on Andy Udman's live drive show. And he sat back again, played referee, as this time I found myself in an on-air debate with James Donnelly, president of Blue and White Taxi in London, and we'll be posting that exchange along with the show later. And um, callers were and texters were encouraged to express their reactions following my, my exchange with Mr. Donnelly. It was a study in contrast, to say the least. And not everyone was happy with what I had to say, I have to tell you. Now, it's understandable that the owners of existing tax, tax services fear the competitive edge that Uber offers its many satisfied customers. But in opposition to Uber, their arguments leave much to be desired, to say the least. Get this, we get a city set rate, said Donnelly during his exchange with me. In return, the city helps us maintain sustainability in slow times by limiting the number of cabs. That's it, end quote. And that is it. It's plain and simple crony politics. And worse, to justify this uh, unjustifiable state of affairs, Donnelly and other cab owners resorted to bizarre and irrelevant distractions, arguing, for example, that the food supply is heavily regulated. Like, who knew that there was a limit on the number of bananas and apples that were allowed to be sold? Did you ever heard, hear of that regulation? <laughs> no. Uh, or that cab, cabs are an essential service, get this, they're an essential service and therefore must be limited by law to prevent a flood of service providers. <laughs> 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 I'm sitting there, question mark, explanation point. I can't, I can't get it. Or that competition in the industry is already illegal and should therefore be kept so. Well, that's too self-serving to need comment. That Uber drivers lack everything from adequate insurance, safe vehicles, adequate background checks, and all the other distractions I predicted. But so far, I haven't heard Uber's customers complain, only Uber's competition. <laughs> then there's the outrageous denial that the taxi industry is, in fact, a monopoly. Monopoly means one. Four is not one, he said. But this monopoly is not a business monopoly. It's a political one. The one is the city. In London, the city sets the rates. None of the four competing camp, uh, cab companies do so. The city sets the number of drivers allowed. The competing cab companies must all ration the allowable numbers of drivers between them. All of this is to say nothing of the licensing requirements and cab plate permits, which were already creating a crisis in the industry back in 1993, as we were involved ourselves way back then with, uh, with Freedom Party. And in that time, we were, we were helping the cab drivers themselves protest the monopoly of the, of the people that had to join, right? It was ridiculous. So whether there are one, two, or four taxi brokerages licensed by a municipality, the monopoly is held and exercised by the municipality. It's a politically established one, not an economic monopoly arising from one competitor's consumer-chosen market uh, <laughs> dominance over another. If Uber demonstrates anything, if this debate demonstrates anything, it's that there's two few rational or principled voices speaking out against this kind of politics and that kind of disturbs me a little bit too. It's a little upsetting not to hear more voices speaking out uh, in favor of the freedom side of the issue. Now here's the big issue. Defenders of the taxi status quo have made no secret of the fact that their economic religion is based on what economists call the fixed pie theory which ha has been demonstrated to be false time and time again. In politics and economics, fixed pies only exist when political forces fix them. There are no fixed pies without the fixers. When there are no fixers around, the pies grow or they shrink in accordance with how many people still want a piece of that pie or how many people there are to bake them. So 
how do we determine the number of pie bakers? You know, I was asked to, how do we stop the flood, like, 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 a, like are worried about a flood of too much service. Well, without pie fixers, the size of the pie is regulated, not fixed, by prices, which in turn regulate both the number of consumers and the number of producers. This is such a basic fact of the law of supply and demand that we have all these people in the city ignoring it entirely is like literally ignoring gravity itself. And that's why fixers of pies, after discovering that fixing the pie still doesn't bring them the peace they want, then they have to resort to price fixing, which is precisely the process used and advocated under the city's taxi cab monopoly, to say nothing of the post office and a whole bunch of others. So, you know, I really think that uh, the whole thing to me, the whole ca cab industry, it really should be a cottage industry, and so should growing pot, things like that. They, I mean, they can become industries if someone can make a go of them, but sure. this should be, should be something open to the average person. I've already told of my experience of being down in Trinidad in the 70s and 80s, uh, where half the drivers were driving cars with a license that started with the letter H, and that meant they were available for hire, and you just signal them and they pull over, yeah. and never a problem getting around. It was even simpler than anything like Uber. And uh, they had criminal background checks and all that, you know. It was a great system. And to think it was being used in the country where everyone drove on the left. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, just ridiculous. And then the insurance risk, you know, they keep talking about that. Wouldn't the risk be spread out far more? And shouldn't insurance rates go down if you had a lot more Uber drivers spread out, spreading out that market instead of a, a handful of drivers forced to drive a lot of people? You'd think the risk would go up. They'd be forced on the road. So somehow you'd think that, that the actuarial tables would balance out with more drivers serving more people and regulated by a market on top of that. So, um, you know, they also found out that in the average driver in Toronto had reported an income of $3,000 in the last year, and, and that's not exactly enough to live on, but it's enough to supplement a small income or no income at all, to say nothing of, uh, you know, no-fault insurance and the absence of a tort system under the, the regulations. These things all could be fixed as well. But the dedication of the monopolists around the world everywhere and their opposition to Uber has exposed what I have to call the capitalist pigs at the trough of government. Another pigopoly is Ontario's beer store monopoly, which is completely foreign-owned. And I understand now they're going to allow grocery stores to, to sell six-packs, but they can only sell so many a day. Yeah. And then after they sell that, the store gets fined, and then the, the fine goes to the beer store. It's exactly that kind of That's legislation evil. that sure. the people who want to vote liberal federally to, to legalize pot yeah. will be uh, oh. confronting. That's it, it, exactly the kind of stuff. It's just unbelievable that they could even go there and talk like this. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. <laughs> but the crony politicians and the capitalist pigs working together work to put the coercion back into the marketplace, which is why there is no capitalism nor a free market in the taxi industry or anywhere in the world that's, that this arrangement exists. Crony capitalism is more a political economic hybrid term. Its strict political counterpart in governance would only be called fascism, a system under which the state does not own but does control otherwise privately owned properties and private business enterprises from limiting trade to setting prices and rates. That's fascism, pure and simple. But under fascism, all of the controls are calculated to the benefit of the state. Under so-called crony capitalism, the state-imposed controls are calculated to benefit both the state and the capitalist pigs who feed at the, tr at the crony trough. 
where the state both owns and controls a property or what would otherwise be a private service. We call that form of governance socialism or communism. And uh, there's just a market, no free market, just a fixed market. Labor monopolies through unionization, health care monopoly, you know, I call it a single-payer system, one. Beer store monopolies, foreign-owned, no less, where now even the number of six-packs allowed, you know, will have a daily cap placed on them. LCBO monopoly, pot store monopolies being set up now by the same political interest, by the way, who put, all, who put others in jail for pot offenses before. Taxi monopolies versus anybody plus Uber, public transit monopolies, Canada Post mail service monopoly. Look at all the problems we're having with these things. The hydro monopoly, it's called hydro one, not two <laughs> or three. Yes. Uh, the CRTC is still arguing and bitching about cable services and what we're allowed to see on TV when meanwhile everybody's already gone around the bend and, and they're all online. I'm sure they're waiting just to clamp down on all us people using our computers all overpriced in the public interest essential service state monopolies that make our lives worse than would otherwise be the case. Every single one of them is morally offensive. Above all, preventing such crony politics and state monopolies is precisely what a government should be doing. Governing, i.e. keeping free all of these industries, you know, from coercion, and the government should be the referee, not a player in the game. Behind every state monopoly, our private interests, whether teachers, doctors, corporations like Samsung, cab services, you name it. Ironically, our governments have created not only a state monopoly in order to, quote, protect the public from greedy capitalist pigs, but in so doing, they have created the greedy capitalist pigs themselves. Otherwise, there would be none. So remember, don't squeal. At least until next week, when, I'll, when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then... Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Bye-bye. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Mr. Fader, Lisa Gronitz is here for her 3 o'clock appointment. Send her in. You may come in now. Thank you. Oh, Boris. Lisa, darling. How are you? Fine, so good to see you. Uh, there is Arnold Ziffer. Uh, he's outside eating your secretary's lunch. <laughs> what? Uh, well, I'll get him. Arnold, you can come in now. <laughs> Boris, this is Arnold Ziffer. <laughs> he's a pig. You're right, he did notice. Arnold going to start to work? Well, he... Oh, my husband is a lawyer and he can take care of all the contracts. Oh, yes. I, I do all of the legal work for some of the biggest pigs in Hooterville. 